So before I jump into a lot of the information um, or, you know, even take any questions, uh, I do want to go over a couple of definitions because I think it's important to know what the difference is between a feeding disorder and a true swallow disorder. So a feeding disorder, the, these are problems in a broad range of eating activities that may or may not be accompanied by the difficulty with swallowing food or liquid. Feeding disorders may be characterized by food refusals, disruptive mealtime behavior, rigid food preferences, less than optimal growth, and failure to master self-feeding skills that are expected for developmental levels. Whereas a swallowing disorder or dysphagia, uh, these are problems in one or more phases of the actual swallow. And that could include the oral phase, which is the formation of the bolus. Um, it could be the oral um, transit phase, right? So kind of moving and starting to initiate the swallow. Um, and then the actual initiation of the swallow um, could be impaired. Um, there could be uh, an impairment in the pharyngeal phase. So that um, is an area of the swallow that is involuntary. Um, and um, so we could see some difficulties in that stage of the swallow. And then we can also see difficulties in the esophageal phase. Um, so that would be something that, you know, GI might, uh, you know, be more um, involved with. Um, so I like to go over these definitions so that um, we can know that um, a swallowing disorder, dysphagia, is a type of feeding disorder, but a feeding disorder isn't necessarily dysphagia or a swallow disorder. So the prevalence, um, feeding-related concerns are amongst the most common issues in preschool children who are brought to primary care professionals by their parents. And the incidence of feeding disorders is estimated to be between 25 to 45% of typically developing children and about up to 80% of children with um, developmental disabilities. So, you know, oftentimes, you know, these, uh, we have parents who go to their pediatricians and they say, oh, you know, my kid has, you know, is a picky eater, right? I get that a lot. Uh, oh yeah, picky eating, right? And so most of the time, you know, parents hear, you know, well, picky eating is normal. Um, and to some degree, you know, picky eating is normal kind of phase in the kind of exploration to more solid foods. Um, but I'd like to go over, you know, this um, slide as well so that we can start to see, okay, what is, you know, considered a typical picky eater and the behaviors that we would normally associate with the picky eater versus those that we would consider to be more problem feeders and those that we would consider to be more red flags and may potentially need um, a feeding evaluation. So a picky eater, we would kind of expect those children to have, um, you know, a decreased range of variety of foods, maybe about 30 or more foods um, in their food repertoire. Um, they might often burn out of foods. Um, so what we mean by that is that, you know, they might lose foods. They might really, really love, you know, cheddar cheese and eat a lot of cheddar cheese and then all of a sudden burn out and then they don't want it. But when you give them about a two week break or a little bit of a break, they're able to reintroduce that food back into their food repertoire. Um, these kids are also able to eat at least one food from one or, you know, most all nutrition or texture groups. So they're able to eat, you know, proteins and they're able to eat fruits and vegetables, maybe not a lot, but they might have, you know, one or two in each category. They can also accept and tolerate new food on their plate. So they might be able to touch um, or maybe taste it even if they're reluctant to, but they're still okay with the presence of that new food. These children may also eat a different set of foods at mealtimes um, than the other members of the family, but they can sometimes eat at, this, at the same time, right? They might eat different foods, but you could still have a family meal together. 
And they're sometimes reported at the wellness checkups to be picky eaters. Then we move on to the problem feeders, some more of the red flags that we would see. So um, they might have more of that restricted range. So they usually eat less than 20 foods. Um, these kiddos burn out of foods, um, but even if you give them a break, they're unable to reintroduce that food. So we go from having 20 foods in their food repertoire down to let's say 18, and then that number just starts to decrease and decrease as they burn out of their favorite foods. These children might also refuse entire categories of food textures or nutrition groups. So we might have kids that, you know, they don't eat any um, hard, you know, crunchy foods or like they eat no vegetables or they eat no meats. Um, we can also see kiddos who only eat, you know, uh, starchy foods or prefer just really easy snacky type of foods like your puffs and um, your chips. We see these kids cry, scream, really fall apart whenever new foods are introduced or are presented to them. So they have the complete food refusal and they don't want any new foods touching their plate or their preferred foods. They almost always eat a different set of foods than their family and they often have to eat at a different time or a different place than the rest of the family because they have such high aversions to even um, having those new foods present um, around them. And these kiddos are the ones who are persistently reported to be those picky eaters at multiple wellness um, checkups. So I wanted to kind of start off, um, you know, with a discussion question um, to kind of read the room and see, you know, what are some of the challenges centered on feeding that you experience um, if you are, you know, a parent of someone who has some feeding challenges, or if you are a provider who works with um, families who have um, feeding challenges. What what are some of these challenges? And feel free to take the mic or type in the chat box. Hi, Cindy. While um, she's typing, I was going to say a lot of my parents struggle with getting their kids to eat. Um, chunky food like chunks they have to puree a lot of things so the the baby's usually just you know drinking eating purees and if there's a chunk in it they won't eat it and they gag yeah so that is you know um, something that I have seen multiple times um, you know sometimes um, that kind of a challenge can be for multiple reasons, right? There could be, um, you know, some challenges with the oromotor components, right? And really um, chewing and managing a more complex food. So it could be that there needs to be, you know, some help between going from a really soft and easy puree to something that's a little bit more challenging and lumpy. So it could be oromotor, um, it could also be sensory um, wise. And I do have some, some slides about the sensory um, aspect of feeding. Um, and this could be because it could be a texture base, right? And so they may struggle with that texture and that consistency. And that may be what is resulting in the gag. Um, so for, for a kiddo like that, right, we'd really want to see, okay, is this, you know, sensory and, and, or is this motor or is sensory and motor kind of working together negatively and impacting the overall mealtime experience for the child? Um, I see Ivana typed children covering their mouths and having breakdown during feeding time every day. So, you know, with, with something like that, right, where it's a pretty consistent um, behavior that's associated with the mealtime routines, I would really want to see, okay, what does a successful feed look like? And really start to um, 
kind of tease out what may be impacting that breakdown at the mealtime, right? Um, we know that feeding doesn't happen in isolation and it's not just one snapshot. So, you know, what else is going on underneath the surface um, with, with something like that? Um, where it's a repeated behavior, multiple, um, you know, if it's at every feed, you know, that, that would be something that I'd really want to kind of work with that family with to kind of see what's, what's going on with their child. Um, let's see, we, Florence, we have a G2 baby here, um, still working on getting him to start eating by mouth. Not sure what his challenges will be when he starts eating. Yeah. And so, you know, with, when we're um, working with our G2 fed babies, right? Um, one of the biggest things we're really going to first start off with is, okay, when are they ready and safe to start trials by mouth? And once we start trials by mouth, we really want to make sure that we're working slowly and building that confidence and that competence in terms of the oromotor skills so that they can feel safe, right? Because if we see a child who has prolonged G-tube feeds, right? Um, they, they're really missing out on all those experiences over time of being fed by mouth. So in the meantime, really increasing positive oral experiences. And what I mean by that is, you know, if we're talking about babies, right? You know, teethers, teething toys, um, maybe we can do, um, you know, some, some ice cubes or some cold, you can put the toys in the freezer and start exposing to different temperatures in and around the mouth. Um, we can do lots of nice facial massages around the, the face and mouth. So really start to work on decreasing potential hypersensitivity in and around the mouth. Um, and then when we move into something like toothbrushing, really making sure that that um, is a positive experience for the child as well. Um, so there's lots that we can work on with our G2 babies um, before they even start to introduce food by mouth. And feel free to type, um, you know, throughout um, if you have something else to add. Um, I'll try to get through as much of this material um, as, I, as I can today. So, you know, to refer or not to refer for a feeding evaluation. So who may need a clinical evaluation? Um, someone who may, you know, have prolonged meal time. So um, are they taking, you know, more than 25, 30 minutes to, you know, complete a meal and get enough calories during that meal? Are they dependent on someone else to feed them where, you know, they're fully um, at the age where they can be um, doing more self-feedings? And, you know, if they are dependent on someone else, is it only that one person that can feed them? Or is it multiple people that are able to feed them, right? We often see kiddos who it can only be a certain caregiver that um, offers the meals, and then the child completely refuses um, whenever somebody else tries to uh, feed them. Um, is this somebody who needs special equipment to be a successful feeder? Are they refusing foods? Are mealtimes becoming stressful? Is weight gain starting to be a concern? Are there concerns with their respiration? Are they vomiting or gagging regularly? And is there uh, irritability associated with mealtimes? So already with you know, the... Uh, questions and examples um, that people have typed in and shared, I would say probably all might benefit from a clinical evaluation just to, to see and support the family in what may be going on in terms of mealtimes. 
So as I mentioned earlier, right, feeding is just a, a brief snapshot in time. And most of us think, okay, feeding is this easy, natural process that happens. When in reality, right, there's so many things that have to happen and go well underneath the surface in order for meal times and feeding to be successful. So we see, you know, the child put strawberries in their mouth, chew and swallow as feeding. But in reality, right, we need to make sure that the environment is safe and uh, suitable for that child to eat. Uh, we need to make sure that, you know, their development uh, is at that, uh, you know, state where they can start taking uh, foods like strawberries by mouth. Uh, we need to take into consideration their nutritional status and their nutritional history, right? Do they have a history of G-tube or N-G-tube feeding? We need to understand their learning history, their learning style, and their capacity. We need to make sure that every muscle inside and out is working well at, and is stable in order for, you know, the child to have a successful meal time. Right. Are they able to fully sit up independently or do they need supports to help prop themselves up? Do they uh, would they benefit from some PT to help stabilize their core? Um, can they hold their head up independently or are they constantly ugh, tilting their head back every time the spoon gets presented to them? Um, we also need to make sure that organs are functioning well and that, you know, in terms of the sensory system, that that is all um, working well as well. And, um, you know, and really kind of figuring out, are there additional supports that they might need in order to make that feeding successful for the child? So again, feeding does not occur in isolation. Because most child feeding occurs in the family setting, it is essential that we understand how families approach feeding when their child has significant feeding problems, right? We um, see families uh, from all types of backgrounds who bring in their own kind of histories with feeding and mealtime, their own relationships with foods, and their own priorities for mealtimes. We also have families from a variety of cultural backgrounds who may have a completely different feeding approach or approach to, to you know, progression to solids than, you know, we might have. And so it's very much important for us to understand what else we're bringing to the table when we're sitting at the table. So... Once a child gets referred for a feeding evaluation, we kind of figure out, okay, what, what kind of supports and what goal areas are we really going to be working on? And so some goal, general goal areas that somebody might be working on is, you know, desensitization to touch, textures, taste, um, to new foods. It could be that slow comfort and acceptance of new foods. Um, maybe we're getting them used to new smells and new tastes so that they start to expand that food repertoire. And so that we prevent more of those meltdowns at mealtimes whenever maybe dad is eating a different meal sitting next to him. We might be working on some specific oral motor skills. So could they benefit from working and strengthening their chewing skills so that they can progress to a more difficult um, food? Are we working on straw drinking skills so that we can start working on some open cup drinking? As, um, are we working on self-feeding? So using utensils um, independently, are we working on really increasing their food variety and their diet repertoire? Are we working on those routines? Is this someone who is working on weaning from a tube? Right, are we trying to vary the feeders, right? As I mentioned earlier, some kiddos with feeding challenges, there can only be that one person that feeds them. So are we working on having them accept other people, right? As maybe we're preparing them to go to daycare or, you know, go to school and maybe have the school nurse help. Um, 
are we working on just pleasure feeds? Um, so this could be, um, you know, who kiddos who are more medically complex, who we know are not going to eat by mouth, but maybe we're doing pleasure tastes um, just so that, you know, we're giving them those positive oral experiences. And it could be that we're also working to either increase or decrease some tone. Some more specific areas that we might need to address are, you know, maybe in terms of this pre-feeding skill. So the skills that are really necessary before a child is able to move on and progress to more solid food. Right. Are we working on gross motor skills like those head um, and neck muscles and that control for those muscles, that trunk control, sitting skills? Are we working on fine motor skills or oral motor skills? Right? Can they manage their saliva? And if so, can they manage their saliva in multiple positions or only when they're upright? Um, so with some of these areas, we may need to work, you know, in a multidisciplinary uh, way with other professionals like occupational therapists or uh, physical therapists where we're really working on strengthening those muscles to prepare the child to be a successful feeder when they're ready. Uh, in terms of mealtime management, right, we could be working on some of those family routines or just getting the child into the routine of, you know, first we sit at the table and then mom brings out the plate and then you get to pick out three things, whatever it is um, in terms of that routine, we might be working on kind of supporting the family to build a new routine for the child. Uh, we do a lot of caregiver education, you know, let's try this, what works, what doesn't work. For some families, it's uh, a lot of work too on kind of decreasing the distractions, right? So sometimes limiting um, the rewards, um, the videos during mealtimes. Uh, we might be working on certain positionings, like what positions might be more optimal for that child to be a successful feeder, we may be just working on the overall relationship with food and mealtimes in general and starting to build a more positive connection with uh, feeding in general, especially if um, we're working with someone who maybe doesn't have really positive experiences or in the past has had a super traumatic or negative experience during mealtimes. Any questions so far? Right. So some factors that might limit a child's oromotor skills, right? Again, we can think about the tone and the movement of the muscles in and around the mouth or even like the core trunk support, right? All these can end up impacting our oromotor development. Also the function of oral structures, right? Um, so are they really able to, you know, move everything adequately or, you know, is this a child who has a history of seizures um, that may have impacted some function? We might also be working um, with someone who uh, has a history of, you know, some motor deficits or some sensory processing. Um, so these are all different factors that can limit, you know, how well a child is able to progress in their oral motor skills. Now, when we look at specifically some of the sensory issues that can impact feeding, right, when we think of um, some of the big issues, we can think of the proprioception, vestibular, and interception. So proprioception is that positional awareness um, location and orientation to movement in space, right? I know where I am um, and I feel safe. Uh, vestibular is that balance and orientation to space um, relative to gravity. And interception is that ability to read your own internal body signals. And some children really do struggle with that, right? They they don't have that self-awareness or ability to really say, you know, this is how I feel or I don't like that because it makes my stomach hurt, right? They just, I don't like it. It doesn't taste good. Um, and so sometimes we really need to start building some of the vocabulary 
within mealtime routines to really give children access to start to name what it is that they're feeling during mealtime so that we can kind of problem solve and see if there are other additional supports we may offer. So when we look at children who are hyposensitive, right, these children show reduced reaction to sensations than we would normally expect. So these, uh, this can cause some feeding disorders. Um, they can be more indifferent towards eating. They may in general just lack the sensory system to help drive that motor system, right? Um, and what I mean by that is, right, I feel thirsty. I know that I need to reach out and grab the cup to drink so that I can satisfy my thirst. Some children really lack that. Um, and so if their sensory system is more suppressed and hyposensitive, it may impact their motor system as well. For these children, we may see some drooling. Uh, we may see that overstuffing of food. Again, if they don't, if they lack the awareness of, you know, how much food is in my mouth, they're just going to keep putting food in their mouth. We may see these kiddos have some poor sucker chewing because of that reduced sensation and discrimination in their mouth, right? So sometimes food just kind of gets lost. And these kiddos are also the, the ones that you may um, see who hold on to things for a really long time and then they forget and then they start coughing and then they realize you realize, Oh, it's because they were, they still had that goldfish in their mouth um, from, you know, 10 minutes ago. These kiddos may also need more bold flavors or different temperatures just to help wake up and integrate that system again, because they're, they're hyposensitive. So they're, they're, they're low. On the other side, we might have someone who is hypersensitive. So these children might have stronger, more exaggerated reactions to specific sensations than we would normally expect. So these might be the kiddos who, as soon as you start to peel a banana, they start gagging because their smell, their olfactory system is super heightened. Uh, these are the children, you know, we might see a child who has been too fed and then may have a strong reaction when foods are introduced or reintroduced after a long period of time. They may have abnormal reflex patterns. These are the kiddos um, who need to have more bland foods or more neutral temperatures, again, because if it's too much, too much flavor, um, it can really set off their sensory system. And these might also be the kiddos who may benefit from more quiet and calm environments. So we may need to decrease the amount of stimuli in the room for them so that they can be successful feeders. And then we always have the kiddos who might have some mixed sensitivities or who go from one end of the spectrum to the other, depending on the amount of stimuli in the environment. Um, and it could be the time of day too, right? We may see kiddos who are cruising throughout the day, but then as soon as they get tired towards the end of the day, they might be more hypersensitive and any little thing can really trigger them. Um, and it can also be um, dependent on the side of the mouth. One side may be uh, more hyposensitive. Um, and so we really could work on, um, you know, a particular area of the mouth. So, um, you know, when we when we think about these kiddos, right, we want to make sure that these kids are in the right state uh, so that they have that positive and successful feeding experience. So if we have our kiddos up here who are those hyper responsive kids who are hypersensitive, things are really just too loud, too fast, too bright. So we really need to think about, okay, what can we do in the environment or what kind of supports can we offer to help bring them down to the right state. So can we maybe turn off the lights? Can we turn off the TV? Uh, can we give some bland neutral flavors to really just bring him down? And on the opposite end, right, when we have our kiddos who are hypo responsive, 
right? What do they need to come up, right? Do they need to swing for, you know, five minutes before we sit them down um, at the high chair? Do we need to do um, some tummy time again before we, we sit down? Um, or, you know, can we offer some bold flavors and um, some different temperatures to help kind of wake them up? Um, so we really need to think about, you know, what is the type of input that we're offering? What is the timing of that input? Um, and really note the changes that we're seeing because it could be that we overshoot and then we have our hypo-responsive kid, we give too much input and then we bring it up here and then they're hyper-responsive and so then we'd have to bring them back down. So really thinking about that timing and kind of the small changes changes that we make during meal times to help get them in this optimal state for them. So in thinking about kind of the, the different um, states, right, hypersensitivity, hyposensitivity, we can think about how different um, mealtime experiences may impact a child's feeding, right? So, uh, you know, when we think of like scraping the spoon on the child's chin and lips in order to get the last bit of puree into the mouth. You know, we can really start to think about what type of sensory information is that sending to the child and what could it be doing um, in terms of that child's um, state of arousal. Um, we could think about the clapping and cheering as reinforcement. Um, you know, is that too much for the child? Um, and so if so, you know, what may that be doing in terms of alarming their sensory system? Um, force feeding, right, especially going back to the um, like hyposensitive child who may not discriminate that there's food coming in. And so the more that we put in, maybe it just kind of oversteps. Um, we can think about too, you know, the environmental distractions and what that can do um, to a child who maybe has a hard time focusing on meal times when there's just too much going on in the environment. You know, wiping the face in between bites, what kind of sensory um, information is that sending to the child? And, you know, any yelling or screaming um, in the background or during the meal time, you know, what does that do in terms of arousal state? So in general, some sensory considerations, right? We want to think about um, too much sensory information can often make for an uncomfortable environment. Um, you know, when there's just too much, too much new going on, it might just overload the system. Um, but too little sensory information can mean that the system is not alert. Um, you know, we can it can cause sudden changes in the movement during mealtimes, sensory, um, you know, we could also make it difficult to eat in certain environments. So I often have parents who say, well, they can't eat at a restaurant um, because it's just too much um, and too many changes, too much new for the child. It can contribute to some distractibility or hyperactivity during mealtimes, right? Those kids who like, oh, this is fun and play, uh, uh, throw everything everywhere on the floor. Um, it can also lead to reducing the number of foods that a child eats because, again, remember, if we think about a child who maybe would benefit from more bland flavors, right? you know, those really bold, rich flavors that a family, you know, normally has in their meals may be kind of one of the sources of, no, I don't want it. I don't want it. I don't want it. And again, it can just contribute to that overall refusal to eat foods and the, mm -mm, I don't want it. Right. So really thinking about, okay, how can we optimize the environment in order to support that child's sensory system? So children who have severe visual impairment, um, we know that reduces the ability to anticipate and prepare the mouth for feeding. So if we're only giving visual cues that the food is coming, they may not be ready for the next bite. 
these children may often show that hypo reaction. So again, that reduced reaction to, to more specific sensations than we would typically expect. And so they may come off as someone who is, you know, disinterested in mealtimes or food because they have that hypo reaction. So we really may need to work on breeding um, more nuanced cues with these kiddos because they may present as, nah, I just don't want to eat. Uh, these children may also have difficulty processing sensory input and may process sensory input in a different way um, than we would normally expect. And so we may need to change some, you know, aspects of the overall sensory environment in order to fully support these children to be successful uh, feeders. Um, we may have to, they may have more slow or inefficient oral control related to that low level response of sensory information. These kiddos um, may tire out more rapidly or may find certain foods to just be more challenging. And that is true for any child, right? There just could be a certain type of food that's just harder. And so, um, you know, if we continue to push too much without kind of having incremental steps to be successful with that food, they may just completely refuse it and start to refuse anything that looks, smells, or tastes like it. And so we may need to see kind of what sensory components can facilitate a more efficient response. So it could be that something like, you know, a steak is too hard, but maybe if we chop it up in a certain way or add some sauce to it, it can make it easier. And so they may be more willing to accept it in a different form um, than just giving them, you know, a dry piece of steak. We may have some difficulty with the development of, you know, sucking, swallowing, biting, and chewing. And so we may have to be teaching more specific oral motor skills before we can progress to a more complex texture. So general recommendations, right? Especially if we think about that hypo sensitivity and that lower response, right? We can start to build mealtime routines um, by maybe playing some specific music or sometimes um, I have parents who sing a specific song um, in anticipation to a mealtime routine so that we help to prepare that that sensory system of, oh, okay, I'm getting ready to eat. And they start to kind of build that connection. When we think about our babies, right? Um, babies eat best when they are in control of that initiation, that pacing and the timing of the meal. So we really wanna make sure that we're getting permission before you know we place a nipple in the baby's mouth, right? We can root to really give that, um, that uh, that tactile um, kind of cue that you know getting ready uh, for 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 feeding um, and you know that can really help allow them to give you that yes I am ready to eat right if they push away the bottle or close their mouth they may not be ready um, or you know the same is true for when presenting the spoon right they may just not be ready for the next bite. Um, and so really helping to read those cues so that we can start to build that trust during the mealtime routine with the child. Again, as I mentioned um, with the kiddo who is G-tube fed, right, we want to allow many opportunities for oral exploration of toys, right, because this is going to really help prepare for new textures. So you know, a lot of those teething toys have some of them, you know, vibrate. Some of them have like little ridges or like little dots and have different kind of textures to them. Again, that's helping prepare uh, a child to accept different things, new things, new textures in their mouth, right? When we think about kind of a natural development, um, babies explore their world through their mouth, right? And so that's how they learn about, you know, what's in their environment, what's safe, what's not, 
oh, that's too hard. That's too soft. I like this texture. I don't like this texture. I like this flavor. I don't like this flavor. So they really need to be able to explore and search with their hands. Um, you know, we may see kiddos who tend to be more cautious to reach out um, and kind of grab something new in the environment. And so we may have you know, offer a little bit more support, uh, especially during meal times if they're trying to reach for a new food. Our kiddos may just in general be more cautious to try new foods too, as a result of kind of feeling unsafe um, and kind of reaching out from, from their core. And so we really need to make sure that we're going slowly, again, reading their cues, watching for that feedback along the way, and again, getting the permission and actively involving them whenever we're introducing those new tastes, those new textures. So big recommendation, small is all. Make any sensory changes slowly and start with small amounts, right? We don't want to overwhelm a child ever. So, you know, if we're trying to introduce, you know, music and light and new flavors, we might want to start with just one of those things first and just a little bit. Um, and then as the child is comfortable, then start making those small changes to that. Um, and so the same thing um, with changes to, to the foods, right? We want to make small, small incremental changes if they're already somebody who kind of refuses drastically. Um, because these kiddos are more likely to be stressed by any new flavors on the spoons um, or when someone else is taking charge. Um, you know, in general, smell and smelling new foods helps babies and helps children become more familiar with foods. So I tell parents, you know, sometimes the first step is just to have that new food, you know, present that, that fragrant food present and open in a container next to them so that they're smelling it and getting used to the smell of that flavor or yeah. For our older children, right, we may, you know, have to really guide hands through all aspects of the meal, right? Um, we might have to um, really incorporate more predictable mealtime routines so that, um, you know, they're more prepared about what's going to happen. And we may even build in some opportunities to help with some of that mealtime preparation. Again, we're continuing to introduce new food slowly, especially the older child who has very rigid um, food preferences, right? We may talk to them about the foods that are being offered and allow them to explore it. We might be talking about the properties, right? Again, as I mentioned previously, right, we really want to build that vocabulary so that they're able to tell you why they don't like something as opposed to just saying like, I don't like it. <laughs> that doesn't really give us a lot of information. So maybe we can ask questions like, you know, how does it feel on your tongue? Or what does it smell like? Or start to associate it with something else that they may be do like. And again, changing one aspect at a time. And so I have a little visual here of an example of, of food chaining, right? So maybe this is a kiddo who only likes, you know, classic lace and doesn't like any other type of chip. So is there one property that we can change to kind of slowly get them to like a different type of chip? Um, so not the best and healthiest example, but again, we're able to kind of expand by changing just a small aspect of, um, of the food. So, you know, in general, if a child rejects a food, it may be helpful to change a property of the food before reintroducing it again. So we can think about uh, changing the temperature, changing the consistency of the food. Right. It could be that, you know, we might need to chop it up into smaller bits or add, again, more sauce. And 
always, always, it's important not to sneak foods. Again, that starts to build that distrust um, and really starts to put a strain on mealtime routines if the child is unable to trust their caregivers um, during mealtimes. Some more kind of general recommendations. It may be beneficial for some children to have that personal frame of reference to really establish the boundaries of their eating. So a placemat like these are really great. I buy these for all of my friends who are having babies right now um, so that they can really start to say, okay, well, you know, in this corner, you're always going to find your vegetables. And in this corner, you're always going to find your cheese or whatever it is. And so they really have that predictability of where their food groups are going to be. And again, you're building that familiarity, you're building that trust with the child. We may um, really work on some more self-feeding skills by implementing more of that hand under hand when our verbal directions are not effective or when a child just needs a little bit more. Um, these always allow for incidental learning during meal times. And this way the child can really feel the movement of the spoon to the bowl and then to the mouth and then back down to, to the spoon. And again, it helps to give that spatial awareness of the meal, how much force do they need to scoop, what is the direction of the forces, and again, building that pattern from the mouth and back. Uh, an example of the utility handhold um, for, the, for the spoon and helping um, with that hand under hand for um, for meal times, so they're able to feel the spoon, but they're they have that support, and they're more in control than when just using hand over hand. And it definitely builds more independent learning than hand over hand. And then um, for all transitional feeders, right, we, we might want to check uh, our utensils and if, you know, maybe that is, you know, a source of the problem for them, right? Do they need a weighted spoon? Do they need a shorter spoon? Do they need a textured spoon? And, you know, same thing with the kind of the, the placemats. Some kids kind of need that stability um, in order to help kind of scoop the food up uh, with their with their utensils. And also they may benefit from things that have higher sides in order to help kind of collect the food as they're kind of loading the spoon or the fork, right? Again, those boundaries help to establish, well, if I put the utensil in that same space, I know that I'm getting, you know, my broccoli. Um, and, you know, once they build enough of those skills with the hand under hand, it may be kind of necessary to then move on to more supported elbow guidance. Um, and then decreasing and fading those supports as a child builds more independence with their feeding. A good kind of tip you know, helping to teach a child to kind of lean forward a little bit over the plate to avoid major spills and food loss. Um, it may be beneficial to help teach them to hold the bowl with one hand if they don't have one of those kind of mats that kind of keep everything into place. Again, just helping them uh, decrease their frustrations if kind of things are slipping and moving away from them. It may be more challenging. And for children who have partial vision loss, we can think about kind of what that optimal uh, optimum field of vision is for the child. And, you know, really thinking about, okay, where do we want the child's focus to be? Right? Do we need to use some contrasting plates on the table? Um, you know, do we need to minimize the environmental movements or um, sounds in order to decrease those distractions. Um, and again, really thinking about those, you know, the hypersensitivity and the hyposensitivity so they have that positive sensory experience in their, during their mealtime. Um, and as I mentioned, right, 
our families bring in. We bring in our personal and family values to our meal times, right? There are a lot of our moral values that are related to food and they're communicated during meal times. So we might have experiences where a caregiver has told us, you know, you may, you must eat everything off the plate, right? And oftentimes I can teach children to ignore those internal cues of, you know, I'm full or no, I'm still hungry. Um, and so, you know, we really want to kind of see what kind of verbal prompts and cues we can help um, increase a more positive mealtime experience with the child. Because we want them to, you know, have that, you know, positive physical and emotional relationship with eating that is free of pain and discomfort. Um, because if they're being told, eat all of this, when, you know, something internally is flagging them like this doesn't feel good, this doesn't feel good, right? We need to make sure that we're um, supporting children to be able to communicate any pain or discomfort. Any questions? And please feel free to uh, unmute yourself if you'd like to ask a question or place it in the chat. Wendy, I am going to make a comment. I really like how you said small is all. I think that's what you said. So many times um, parents and professionals, not just us professionals, sometimes want parents to add something new, like let's use a new toy today, and then maybe later on they decide to use a new food, and it's like, is it too much new in one day? Although it's at different times, different routines, but, you know, I that consideration that that just might be too much new in one day, although it's three hours apart, it might be overwhelming the child. And um, I like that saying small is all. Yeah, I really have started to change kind of the the timing of my inputs, even when I'm doing, just, you know, speech and language session. Uh, because, you know, if a child starts to break down, I don't know, was it the new toy? Or was it the new food? Now I don't know. Now I have to get rid of both. Right. And so instead of having to kind of start back at square one, if we start to just make small incremental changes, we can see more success and we see more learning in the child because they're more flexible and they're more accepting of those new changes as they kind of go on. Well, I want to thank you today. Thank you so much for joining us, Cindy. Um, we truly appreciate all of your knowledge and just the information you shared with us today and all the considerations and recommendations.